A.W. Tozer was an influential pastor and author. First half of the 20th century. Wrote a number of books. You may be familiar with some of them. But he has this great quote. He says this. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let me say that again. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What an assertion. Radically different than the mentality, the mindset of our culture, isn't it? In fact, it turns it upside down. We'd say right side up. So let me ask you, what do you think is the most important thing about you? What comes into your mind that makes me who I am? Not just in theory, but in practice. When you wake up on Monday, what's the most important thing about you? There's a famous US Supreme Court case, Planned Parenthood of Pennsylvania versus Casey back in 1992. And it codified uh, another view of personhood, really reflected our culture. It said, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. In essence, saying the most important thing about you is the most important thing about a human is what you think. It's what you want. It's your ability to express your feelings and your freedom in relationship to others. That's the most important thing about you. In contrast to that, Tozer is saying, it's not the expression of my drives and desires and dreams. It's what I think about God with the necessary counterpart to that, that I'm to think about God in the way God has revealed himself. So it's God's thoughts about me revealed in his word, which is the most important thing about me. So you see, you and I were created to be defined by God. We weren't created to be defined by ourselves. Fallen man seeks to define himself in other ways. He seeks to define himself by his successes. Though that often proves empty. You may recall the famous, really honest, 60-minute interview back in June of 2005. Some of you. Uh, where Steve Croft interviews Tom Brady. And it was this great interview. It was still early in Brady's football, pro football career, yet he'd already won three Super Bowls. I might be interested to think if the interview happened today. I think it'd probably be similar as his statement is, what's your favorite ring? Well, it's the next one. So Croft asks him, this whole experience, this whole upward trajectory that you're on, what have you learned about yourself? What kind of an effect does it have on you? Brady said a few things, and then he said this. 
why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life, me. I think, God, it's gotta be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it, I'm 27, and what else is there for me? To which Croft responded, what's the answer? Brady responded, I wish I knew, I wish I knew. And then he goes on to talk about relationships, but it's still, I wish I knew. Well, furthermore, maybe more often, it seems fallen man ends up defining himself by his failures and his problems. That's probably even more common. And so Paul David Tripp says these words, the longer we struggle with a problem, the more likely we are to define ourselves by that problem. Isn't that right? Like I'm addicted or I'm depressed or divorced, or codependent, or ADD. We could add a host of others. You know, I'm dealing with sexual orientation issues, or the common, I'm, I'm entrenched in these sin patterns that I don't see a whole lot of growth in. So Tripp goes on to say, we come to believe that our problem is where we are, is who we are. But while these labels may describe particular ways we struggle as sinners in a fallen world, they are not our identity. If we allow them to define us, we will live trapped within their boundaries. This is no way for a child of God to live. Marcus said this morning about how our desires can feel like they're controlling us. It's that, it's that deal that what's our identity? So we come to the question, so what comes into your mind when you think about God? Better, what do you think God thinks about you? Maybe even more, how do you think God feels about you today? So Dave Nortland says our passage today that we're gonna look at is the point of it being in the Bible is that many believers know in their heads that God loves us, However, deep down, we think his love is infected with disappointment. He loves us, but it's a a flustered love. We see him looking down on us with paternal affection, but slightly raised eyebrows, thinking, how are they still falling short so much after all I've done for them? And the shoulders of our soul remain drooped in his presence, and the problem is we're, we're projecting our own capacities to love onto God. And we don't know his truest heart. So do you know God's truest heart for you? Well, let's look at Romans 5, 6 through 11 in scripture to convince you of that. Romans 5, 6. For while we were Still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, 
though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation and the grass withers, flowers fade, and this good word endures even to today, even to the end. So if you back up to Romans 5.1, another beautiful verse where Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified, have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So in this verse, Paul is rejoicing in a past act. We have been justified. He's talking about when you put your faith in Jesus when you did that, God justified you. He, he declared you righteous. He did so because of what Jesus did in your place. And that was the ultimate expression of love for you. It was measured by how much the Father loves the Son. And so when you believed in Jesus, God made this declaration over you. He, he declared you righteous by his law. Your sins were counted to Jesus. And Jesus' righteousness was considered or counted yours. And the effect of this in your life was that you passed from a state of hostility with God into a state of peace with God. So that in verse two, Paul goes on to say, we entered this grace in which we stand. Like we entered a place of grace in which we stand, which is a, a favored position of personal relationship. It's a real privileged place that you were ushered into. And so that in verse five, this, this peace or this favored position is not only grounded in the objective act, the objective love for you, which is Christ's death on your behalf, but it's also a, a subjective experience because God gave you his Holy Spirit and through his Holy Spirit, God pours his love out into your heart so that you know the accomplished act and you know the actual attitude of God for you in this favored place of peace that you were brought into. And notice that experience of love heightens in the midst of suffering. So the suffering doesn't define you, it's that love he's pouring into your heart in the midst of that. So we know and celebrate this. I mean, these are acts that we just review in our minds all the time, that our shortcomings and sins of our past were obliterated uh, when Jesus took our condemnation at the cross. We, we accept this. 
That belongs to our pre-conversion days. They're gone. That identity is over. We are now new creations. We've been justified. We celebrate that as we should. However, but then we ask, what about my present? What about my present as it relates to my ongoing sin? What about the ongoing temptations that just brew up from my flesh so naturally, so instinctively? What about my sin against God now, my sinfulness after I became a child of God? What about all the ways I do what I don't want to do? Even worse, what about all the ways I do what I want to do and that sin? Do my present problems, even those I caused, or those I contributed to, do those affect how God feels about me in the present? Is it just too much? Is he really, is there just a deep undergirding of disappointment and displeasure with God towards me? Is that how I think about God? So we come to our passage today and In our passage, Paul presents us with this riveting a fortiori argument. And an a fortiori argument literally is uh, with stronger reason. It's an argument from major to minor, from the greater to the lesser. Um, Some of us are old enough to remember a commercial back in the 70s, the commercial about Mikey. And so Mikey was that little boy that hated everything. And so these two boys are at a table. Do y'all remember this? Did you have a t-shirt? So there's this bowl of strange new cereal called Life. And these two boys are at the table, cute little boys, and one of them looks at the other and goes, what's that stuff? And the other one goes, I don't know, but it's supposed to be healthy. And the other one says, well, you try it. He says, I'm not trying it. You try it. The other goes, I know. Let's get Mikey to try it. He hates everything. So they push it over to Mikey, and Mikey looks at it, and he takes this bite, and he likes it. And so the other boy goes, he likes it. And then they start eating it too. The idea is the harder to the less hard, if Mikey likes it, who hates everything, then certainly they're going to like it too. Well... Paul does a similar argument here, except in very, like the the key issues of life. John Piper would call this kind of arguing the glorious logic of heaven. And it encourages my heart that Paul takes such a, like a powerful argument because he knows you and I need convincing and persuading that his love is as good as he says it is. And so it's an argument from greater to lesser. The idea is if God did the harder thing, how much more will he do the easier thing? And so what's the major, the greater, the harder thing that God did for you in Christ? What is that thing that God did for you in Christ that was so hard, so great, so major, so difficult? Well, three times in our passage, Paul presses this incredible point upon us That question, when did Christ die for you? 
what were you like when Christ died for you? So verse six, he says, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Weak. Verse eight, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Sinners. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. When did Christ die for you? It was when you were weak. It was when you were a sinner. It was when you were enemies. It wasn't, in verse seven, when you were righteous or good, when you're doing things okay. It wasn't at that moment. It was when you were weak, meaning you were powerless. You were unable to deal with the effects of the fall. You were given to the total incapacity for good. You weren't doing life well. You were weak. And so it's equated with being ungodly. And to get the idea of what ungodly means, you go back to chapter one, verse 18, that, that fearsome verse when Paul opens up his whole argument by saying, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness for what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. But they suppress their truth and exchange the glory of God for the worship of created things. What is ungodly? It's like you were suppressing the truth and worshiping other things. And that's really the essence of what a sinner is. So he moves on to sinners. You were consumed with your own pleasures. You were bent on your own little kingdoms. You were centered on self. You're all about self. In fact, in addition to that, you were enemies. You were enemies of God. There's two sides to that. On one side, you were just outright hateful towards him. Like you applauded when Christ was crucified. You thought that was a good idea. You were at war with God and all that God was about because you wanted to be first. But on God's side too, he was wrathful towards you. Like his wrath was upon you. Judgment was upon you. He was at enmity with you. There was just an all-out rupture such that the commentator Hendrickson would say, Christ died for those who were bad, bad, bad. Like, it was as bad as it could be. It was as bad as it could be. You're weak, you're sinners, and you're enemies when Christ died for you. You see, it was at that very moment. So verse six says, when did it happen? Well, at the right time. So when was the right time? What was the precise time Christ died for you? Well, the sense is when you're weak, when you're sinners, and when you're enemies. At that lowest spot, Christ died for you. 
That's when the Father sent his dearly beloved Son down into our rebellious and revolting world to die in our place, that ultimate act of love, such that in verse eight, Paul says that God the Father shows his love for us by sending his Son to die for us when we were like this. We, we, we weren't getting any stronger. We weren't putting off our sin. We weren't trying to get on friendly terms with God. We were weak and sinful and enemies, entrenched in that. We, we were completely offensive, ugly, disgusting, estranged, and useless. That's the sense of what we were when Christ died for us. And so verse eight says, God shows us in the present. That's a present tense verb. So you, you see that. And the point is, he's wanting to show you today how much he loved you at that miserable state you're in. He shows it to you. He proves it to you. He demonstrates to you that. And the reason God can love us at that point is that verse eight also says, his own love in that it wasn't elicited from something in you. It wasn't sparked or triggered by something redeemable or attractive in us. What boggles the mind, what is more than we can fathom, but a mystery we we celebrate is that it rose from himself, that love for you. It arose from him, it originated in him, not in you. And he poured it out on you when you were in that awful low state. And so this is a a staggering and a mind-blowing truth. Now we look at how the Father proves his love for us by sending his Son to die for us, to be condemned for us, to endure hell for us, when we were completely unworthy of it, and we're overwhelmed by this act of undeserved love. And he wants us to be. Yet as breathtaking as all of that is, that major, that greater, that harder work, as breathtaking as that harder, greater, major work is, that's not Paul's main emphasis here. He uses what God did then to make more certain what God does now. And so Dane Ortland says it this way, Paul's deepest burden is our present security given God's past work. So so the idea is, if God did that for us back then when we were detestable and odious, that greater, harder work, then why would we ever worry that now that we belong to him, his love for us would ever fizzle out or dry up or turn to contempt when we don't measure up or when we fail again? Again, we tend to project onto God our capacity to love And he's trying to persuade us by this close argumentation that he's distinct and different. So in verse nine, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath to come. Now let that much more sink in. It's the lesser thing. If God justified us on the foundation of the blood of his dear son back then when we were so far away, if he proved his love for us back then, 
How much more will he save us from that point on, and especially at judgment day, from his wrath? Like, he took the wrath on himself back then, so now that you're justified and robed in Jesus' righteousness, won't he keep you from his wrath every day and all the days, all up until judgment day? If he took the wrath at the cross, won't he guard you from the wrath from that point on? Won't that be the minor thing he has to do, the lesser thing he has to do, the easier thing he has to do? He did the major one already. Won't the lesser be easier for him to do? And so what Paul is wanting to look at you and convince you of is, If you're justified by faith in Christ, there is no wrath outstanding, no vestige of condemnatory wrath towards you. And and you need to believe that. But then he reinforces it and even fills it out further in verse 10. Because we don't really want to receive this. So he's battering down our fallen man walls with another argument. He says this, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Again, let the much more sink in. The idea then is if God reconciled us on the foundation of the death of his beloved son, back when we were outright enemies and in open hostility with him, if that's how he proved his love for us back then, how much more will he save us by his life now that we're at peace with him? We're his friends, even his adopted sons and daughters in close, intimate relationship with him, which is what reconciliation is. Justification is legal. Reconciliation is personal relationship. In comparison to what he did for us back then, won't this be the minor, the lesser, the easier thing to to keep you united to Christ and in the midst of abundant life and in the full expression of his love for you? If he already did the hardest thing, He's going to do the easier thing. If he loved us back then, both in act and in attitude, in what he accomplished and how he feels about you, he's going to keep on loving us, both in act and in attitude, what he does for us and how he feels about us. He doesn't love like we do. He doesn't get fed up with us. He doesn't view us with disappointment. He doesn't grow displeased with us. He doesn't end up despising us. He loved us when we hated him, so now even more he'll love us when we're his friends, but we fail to follow him as we want. And it's a devastating rebuttal to the devil's greatest weapon, which is his accusing voice that gives you a half-truth, that shows you your sin and doesn't show you the gospel. And it's a devastating rebuttal to fallen 
man's poison, which is God can't be as good as he says he is. Because the effect of those two things that they erode our joy and they undercut our zeal for a wholehearted obedience. And so God's looking at us in these arguments as he's dealing with the walls of our fallen nature and he says, believe me, you're invincible in my love. When you sin, repent, but just know my love for you hasn't changed. It's as strong as ever. I'm not going anywhere. This is nothing compared to what I've already done for you. Within my sure love, grow in grace. Within my sure love, tell others about this grace. And let this be your fundamental identity. Let this be the most important thing about you. So that if 60 Minutes ask you, well, well, what's the answer? You say, well, he, he loved me back then when I was the worst of the worst. Will he not love me today even when I sin again? And so we're protected from a success treadmill and we're protected from being submerged in our problems and we're secure in his love and it colors everything. And this is the most important thing about you, is what God reveals of himself in his word and wants to convince you of today, I loved you when it was the worst, and I'm gonna love you right now, even when you're struggling. And you're secure in that, and you can step out in faith in that. You can grow to love me more, and you can grow to serve others more, because I'm not changing. And the way I loved you is the way I'm gonna keep loving you all the way to glory. And that's good news. And God's people said, amen. Let's stand.